Numbers chapter 6, so if this is your first time to come out to a, uh, a study through the Old Testament, uh, what we will do, um, whether, well, whatever it is on Wednesday night, we typically are doing a survey, so we're trying to cover a large section of Scripture. Um, why do we want to do that? Because I, I believe that if we were to go like five verses at a time, we would never, ever, ever make it through the Old Testament. And, um, and if I did that, I don't think we would understand that larger picture of the book. So there's something that is um, wonderful and it's a blessing to dial down and just do an in-depth study on a, a verse or a phrase or a couple of verses. Um, but there's also a benefit for getting that 30,000 foot view of what you're looking at. I think we need both. So that's, uh, that's one of the goals tonight that we'll have. We won't be able to read every verse, um, but we will be doing some summarizing and dropping down into sections that I believe will help us to capture uh, those significant portions of our text. So the book of Numbers. Um, in the Hebrew, this is in the wilderness. That's what the name of the book is, in the wilderness. As it was translated into Greek um, uh, by those translators, um, they gave it the name of Arithamoi. Um, and then that got translated into Latin, which then got translated into English and its numbers. And it's related to that because of the many countings and the census that are, that are taking place. The purpose is to record the wilderness wanderings of Israel after leaving Sinai. So this is, you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. If you could pick up Leviticus, slide it over, shove numbers right next to Exodus, and you got the chronicle, chronological order again. So that, that's, that's, you know, I know that, that drives us nuts as Westerners, but it didn't drive them nuts, okay? So this is, this is just picking up where we left off chronologically in the book of Exodus. And so after leaving Sinai, um, God is going to lead them through the wilderness. He's going to dis demonstrate his faithfulness to the covenant, even in their rebellion. This is going to be one of the major features of this. Um, this is a 40, it covers, well, 38 years. So not 40, two of them are, are, are in, by the time we get to here, we're in our second year. So 38 years of their wilderness wanderings. Um, it has some poetry. It has two different census, chapter 1, chapter 26. Um, it gives us details about their, uh, their, their lives. This is a book that details Israel's preparation and then their failure to enter into the promised land. And we're going to find that classic scene there in Kadesh Barnea where they decide not to go into the land because the giants are there. Now, as, as they, they travel through, or as we go through this book, we're going to see um, that some of the reasons of, for this book is you got two million people traveling through the wilderness. And you want to know, as you go out, how many people do we have to fight? Because we have enemies out here. So there's a numbering to find out how many fighting men there are. Um, they're going to be given instruction on how to camp and where to camp every single time. Um, every mom loved that because the kids could know where to come home. You got two million people. Where are we? And at least they can have a general idea. Get in this area and look for this banner. Look for the red banner. Look for the gold banner. Look for the green banner. That's where we're, we're, we're in that area. Um, so it was an organizational um, uh, book 
to help them know how to pick up and to move camp, how to attend to the tabernacle, who's gonna, who's gonna carry these different items of the tabernacle as they break it down. So lots of details. Um, now as they, this book is gonna cover um, some geographical locations, and, and, and you'll see that if you look at the outline in your book, you can, or your, your brochure, you can see that. But um, a map that kind of shows the area that they're gonna be in. They're gonna be in the wilderness of Sinai, that Sinai Peninsula, the wilderness of Paran, and then Agav. So this is where, this is a part of the world where numbers takes place. Um, here's a picture of the wilderness of Paran. It, it doesn't look real friendly. You go to the next slide if you don't mind. And um, that's, that's where they spend a lot of time. Um, you can see why they needed water. Um, to come from a rock. So anyway, they, they are going to, this is where they're going to be. Now in your handout, you have um, the outline. And tonight we're going to try and get through the first section. And then chapters one through 10 are dealing with the preparation for the journey. So there's not a lot of geograph, uh, geographical places named in these opening 10 chapters. Um, but you are going to have a census and, and the order of the tribes in chapters one and two, you're gonna have instruction for the priests, very general statement there. Um, you're gonna have the cleansing and the vows, um, and that's about as far as we'll get tonight. Then, as you can see, it goes through the rest of that. But the big points for the, um, the outline is preparation for the journey, chapters one through 10, um, through verse you know, nine, actually. And then chapter 10, verse 10 through 21 is the journey. They're gonna to go to Kadesh. They're gonna be make it to uh, Moab. They're gonna arrive in Moab in chapters 22 through 36. And you have a set of events that are gonna take place there as well. So that kind of orients you a little bit to the book and, and what is coming. So again, the, the book of Numbers is a book that details Israel's preparation to enter into the promised land, and then it highlights and shows us their failure to do that. That's kind of the big theme of the book. Uh, that's the big takeaway. They didn't make it into the promised land, but wandered around for 38 years. So this is one of the reasons why it had, um, you know, in the, in, their, in the wilderness as one of the titles of the book. Um, so, yeah, I think that's probably a pretty good introduction for us. We could say more, but I think that will will give you enough of a feel to uh, move forward. So Numbers chapter one and two, um, we have the first census and the order of the tribes. So in chapter one, a census is gonna be taken of all the men that are 20 years and older and able to go into battle. Verse three, from 20 years old and above, all who are able to go to war in Israel, you and Aaron shall number them by their armies. And so they go through this, they go through the numbering, and um, we are given a breakdown of the tribes and how many they had. Now the interesting thing is, they had um, another census at the end of their journey, wilderness uh, wanderings in chapter 26. And so I'm gonna give you the tribe. I mean, the first number I give you is gonna be chapter one number, and then the second number I'm gonna give you is chapter 26, 38 years later. So in verse 21, we have Reuben, 46,500, then 43,730. So they shrunk a bit. Simeon, 
And verse 23 had 59,300. They went to 22,000. Gad had 45,650. They went to 40,500. Judah has 74,600. They grew a little bit, 76,500. Issachar from 54,000 to 64,300. Zebulun from 57,000 to 60,500. Ephraim, 45,500 down to 32,500. Manasseh, 32,200, 52,700. Benjamin, 35, 4. They moved to 45, 6. Dan was at 62, 7. They went to 64. Asher was at 41, 5. Went to 53, 4. Naphtali at 53, 4 to 45. All that means this. The number at the beginning was 600. You can see this in verses 44. Let's read verses, chapter 1, verse 44 through 46. These are the ones who were numbered, whom Moses and Aaron numbered with the leaders of Israel, 12 men, each one representing his father's house. So all who were numbered of the children of Israel by their father's house, from 20 years old and above, all who were able to go to war in Israel, all who were numbered were 603,000. 550. So, um, 603,550. At the end in chapter 26, their overall number drops by 1,820, which it pretty much stays the same. Um, and so, even though they were in this wilderness and it was hospitable and there were enemies and they didn't have normal life, God sustained them. God sustained them through the wilderness. Um, and, and didn't allow this nation that he was forming to be swallowed up and, and just taken apart. I mean, it would not, I mean, some of these numbers are shocking how much they dropped, but overall, they stayed the same. And, and I know sometimes we can feel like we're in the wilderness, right? And there's no way I'm going to make it out of this place alive. There's not, I just can't do it. There's just, this is too much. If something doesn't happen by next Tuesday, it's all over. And then Monday night comes, you're like, oh, tomorrow's Tuesday. And you wake up, you go through Tuesday, and you know what? You're still, you're still chugging along. And you find out that God is able to sustain you on manna and give you sandals that last a really, really long time. Sandals shouldn't last for 40 years, but theirs did. And, you know, food substance should not be found on the ground every single morning, but it was for them. So we draw these lines. If God doesn't do this, by this point in time, then these things are going to happen. I don't know what you're going to do, God, but you got to do it. And he's like, I'm just going to make your sandals last longer. I'm going to sustain you in the trial. Has anybody ever found that to be true? I mean, it's like, well, by this time. And then it's like, oh, okay. Actually, he can take care of us. And he was faithful to take care of them. In verses 47 through 54 of chapter 1, we find out, and maybe you notice as I was going through that, those numbering, what, what tribe did I not mention, if anybody's paying closely? Yeah, the Levites weren't mentioned. Why is that? Let's read. But the Levites were not numbered among them by their father's tribes. For the Lord had spoken to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not number, nor take a census of them among the children of Israel. But you shall appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, over all of its furnishings, over all that, it belong, that belongs to it. They shall carry the tabernacle and its furnishings. I mean, when they packed up, they had to pack everything up and go. They shall attend to it and camp around the tabernacle. 
And when the tabernacle is to go forward, the Levites shall take it down. And when the tabernacle is to be set up, the Levites shall set it up. The outsider who comes near shall be put to death. So you can think of some accounts in in Scripture where some outsiders came near and it it did not go well for them. Uh, Verse 52, the children of Israel shall pitch their tents and, and everyone by his own camp, everyone by his own standard according to their armies. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the children of Israel. And the Levites shall keep charge of the tabernacle of testimony. Thus the children of Israel did according to all that the Lord Yahweh commanded Moses. So they did. So the Levites were going to be exempt from war. And so why they were not counted because they were going to be in full time taking care of the tabernacle mode. And so the Lord wanted to make certain that when they were, that, that there was all, the ministry was always available, that he could always, the people could come to them, they could take care of things. Turn ahead just a little bit. We'll make this point again next week. But in, turn to Numbers chapter 8. Numbers chapter 8. So, you know, verse 15. Actually, we'll begin at verse 15. It says, After that, the Levites shall go into service the tabernacle of meeting, so you shall cleanse them and offer them like a wave offering, for they are, what's the word? Holy, given to me from among the children of Israel. I have taken them for myself instead of all who open the womb, the firstborn of all the children of Israel. So, they were to be completely dedicated to this purpose and to this cause. And I believe there's a parallel truth that we can pick up on. And that is this, is that we are told to seek ye first the kingdom of God. We are called the royal priesthood in the New Testament. And we have been told that we are not our own, that we've been bought with a price. And that we should serve the Lord with all that we have. Now, I'm not going to say, obviously, this is, This is a different circumstance, it's a different day, it's a different time. But that idea of being completely dedicated to the Lord is something that we should all be thinking through and working through regularly in our life. Lord, do you have all that you want from me? Have I cordoned you off? You know, have I kind of put up some caution tape and not allow the Lord to come past this part of my career or this part of my finances or this part of my hobbies or this part of of my relationships or whatever it may be. And it's like, no, no, I, I can't do that. I won't do that. But do you really have the freedom as a slave to say to your master, no, master, So we all need to be considering ourselves and know that we are to be wholly given over to the Lord. And so we seek the face of God. What do you require of me? Uh, I mean, I do not want to appear before King Jesus at the Bema Seat where judgment will be given, not for my soul, that was taken care of at Calvary, but how I live my life as a servant of his. And to hear him say, well, there's a lot of things, Troy, that I wanted you to do. And it just seemed like you were on your own little track there and you had your own ideas and, and you, you weren't listening to me. And, you know, you did a lot of things, but you, you did. I don't want to have that experience with Jesus. 
I'm not worried about my soul, but I'm going to be looking at the one whose scars are still on his body, who hung on the cross for me, who gave everything for me, and he is certainly worthy. I mean, listen, if the Levites should be wholly given over, how much more ought we to be totally given over? Be careful of drawing those circles around areas of your life and say, that's just mine. Because I can almost guarantee you, if you do that, even if God didn't want it before, he's going to come after it. Not because he needs it, but because of that heart that is behind it. So they were wholly given over. Numbers chapter 2 is the camping arrangements. And so... Um, you can, I'm going to let you read this, and as you read through this, you're going to, they're going to tell you how they were to camp. But if we could, and I think you have it in that brochure, do you? I, you put the slide up there, but you're going to see it easier right there. And um, if you look at the kind of the bottom right of the Israel encampment graphic, um, thank you, Logos, appreciate that. Um, as you look at that, you basically have three squares, don't you? You have the outer square of the tribes, and we, are, we read that part, where then the inner, um, or the middle uh, square, it was to be of the Levites. So they were to kind of provide a bit of a buffer. And then in the center, you had the tabernacle. So the outer ring camp was comprised of 12 tribes, fighting tribes, right? These are the ones that are going to fight. Um, the inner ring was made of the Levites who were going to serve at the innermost part which was the tabernacle of meeting. Notice that the, at the camp was set up, the tabernacle of meeting was at the center of the community. It was at the center, which I believe speaks to us of how that place of meeting with the Lord, communion with him, fellowship with him, that has to be the centerpiece of our life. And it shouldn't be moved I know, away. We, we can't get so busy we don't have time to pray. We can't get so busy we don't have time to read. We can't get so busy we don't have time to see the needs around us and serve people and love people and evangelize. And if we're too busy to do those things, then you, we've got to make changes in our life. Because what's happened is the, the center of um, our life, which should be communion and fellowship with Christ, has gotten off. And so I think you just have this visual picture there. Um, in verses 3 through 9, you have Judah, who is to the east. Verses 10 through 17, Reuben to the south, Ephraim to the west. In verses 18 through 24. And in, chapter, in verses 25 through 31, you have Dan, which is going to be to the north. Now, as you read through these, you're going to find that each one of them is, um, is given in chapter 2 here that each one of them is going to have a banner that is going to be held up. And so um, the eastern banner was green. The southern banner was red. The western banner was golden. And the northern banner was red and white. So the, these would be the banners. Now what we don't read is of any insignia or emblem that was on any of these. We're just given the colors. So that's... That's what we can know for sure. But there's a lot of tradition around this that on these uh, banners was actually um, some insignias of um, an ox, of a lion, 
of an eagle and of the face of a man. And so why would that be significant? It's an if, but if they were on there, why would that be significant? It's not going to change anything about your walk with Jesus, okay? It's just an interesting thing to consider here. Revelation chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Let me read this to you. So we're looking at the scene in heaven. We're in heaven as we read this. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. In the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, a third living creature like the face of a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. That is scripture, obviously. Around the throne of God, you have these um, angels, these creatures, and they have these four different faces. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 10, reads like this. As for the likeness of their faces, again, it's the same idea, around the throne room of God, each had the face of a man, each of them had a, uh, each of the four had a face like a lion on the right side, each of the four had a face of an ox on the left side, each of the four had the face of an eagle. So we see these, these animals and the face of a man coming up again. So, it may be that as, even as these angels re, um, were surrounding the throne of God, that these banners had those insignias, those symbols of the animals in the face of man. That is, a, that is um, conjecture, if you're taking notes. Conjecture, okay? We can't say this for certain, but, you know, it, it wouldn't surprise me if that is one of those traditions that ends up being true just because of what we read in the rest of Scripture. So just a little bit of information. A lot of people will spend a lot of time on this, and, and um, I just would, would say this. It's not a biblical certainty. So it's, you, you're just you're, you're going to put your own weight on that. But that's, that's the camp. That's how they were set up. It was organized. It was, they could know where to be. It would help. Uh, to keep them from being separated. It would make it easier to move. They could get into um, uh, you know, a groove of how they broke down camp and set up camp and you know, be some familiarity with things. And in Numbers chapter three and four, some instruction is given to the priests. So um, in chapter three, verse one, now there are the records of Aaron and Moses when the Lord spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. And these are the names of the sons of Aaron, Nadab, the firstborn, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, the anointed priest whom he consecrated to minister as priests. Nadab and Abihu had died before the Lord. Do you guys remember that account? They offered profane fire before the Lord, right? Um, in the wilderness of Sinai, and they had no children, so Eleazar and Ithamar ministered as priests in the presence of Aaron. So, you know, half of the priesthood was wiped out um, when they offered profane fire before the Lord. And the Lord says, all who draw near to me must glorify me. And I must, they must know that I am holy. So, um, they had crossed some line. We don't know exactly what it is, but their lives um, were taken by the Lord. 
because they were not obedient to him. In verses 5 through 13, um, we see that the the Levites are going to be set apart to uh, serve in the tabernacle. Um, In verses 14 through 39, the census of the Levites was broken up into three family heads. So you have the, the Gershonites, the Kohathites, and the Merari. So you have these groups, and um, each one of them had certain responsibilities in the tabernacle. So in chapter 3, verse 18, if you just kind of will turn to that section, and you're going to get a whole list of names. And as you work through this, you're going to get the number of them in verse 22. Of those who are numbered were 7,500. And um, then you get to verse 25. The duties of the children of Gershon in the tabernacle of meeting included the tabernacle, the tent with its covering, the screen for the door of the tabernacle of meeting, the screen for the door of the court, the hangings of the court, which are around the tabernacle and the altar and their cords, according to all the uh, work relating to them. And then it goes into the Kohathites. And um, you know, among the Kohathites, they were going to care for the furniture and the holy utensils. They're going to camp on the south. The Gershonites are going to camp on the west. Uh, Murari, their duties in verses, um, what do I have here? Verse uh, 33 through 37. They are going to take care of the boards, the sockets, and the structural parts of the tabernacle. So, I mean, this is, you're talking about incredible detail that is given in the book of Numbers. That we read it, and um, yeah, I mean, you, you better be wide awake when you go try to read through all of this. Because this is stuff where you just, you can start to, whoa, whoa, I can't even pronounce the names and boards and sockets. And you might start feeling a little bored. Um, I know I shouldn't say that, but that's, I know that's why most of you have never read this book. So, you know, you, you get into it and you're like, I don't get it. But there, it's, just, it's organizational. This was helpful for them to know how to take care of business. And then um, camping on the east were the sons of Aaron, and they served at the altar. Verses 38 through 39. So that's, that's how the Levites... And you can go through and you can see how each of them are numbered and what their their numbers were, which we're going to get to um, in just a moment. In verses 40 through 45, and I want to read these verses together with you of chapter 3. God um, is going to take the Levites as a substitution for the redemption price of all the firstborn males. Now, this is going back in... um, Book of Exodus, and that there was a redemption price for the firstborn male. And they had to pay uh, a shekel allotment for that firstborn male. Um, so let's read how this all ties together. And you have the number of um, all of the Levites there in verse 39, there's 22,000. So the end of verse 39, 22,000 Levites. Then the Lord said, Number all the firstborn males of the children of Israel from a month old and above. And take the number of their names, and you shall take the Levites for me, I am the Lord. Instead of all the firstborn among the children of Israel and the livestock of the Levites, instead of, the, um, of all the firstborn among the livestock of the children of Israel, so Moses numbered all the firstborn among the children of Israel as the Lord commanded. And all the firstborn males, according to the number of names from a month old and above, of those who were numbered of them were 22,200 and 73. So it's almost the same. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, 
take the Levites instead of all the firstborn among, uh, among the children of Israel and the livestock of the Levites instead of their livestock. The Levites shall be mine. I am the Lord. And for the redemption of the 273 of the firstborn of the children of Israel, who are more than the number of the Levites, you owe me five shekels for each one. And so they go through, and this is what they end up doing. Now, here's the thing. As you go through the book of Numbers, we find out there was some, you know, 600,000 fighting men, which they estimate women, children, um, you know, you would have ended up with a, a crowd, they estimate, because the, the numbers of men, okay, we probably would then have about two million, is what a number you probably have heard before. It's an estimate, about two million people. And that's a, that's a large number of people. And a lot of people get scholars or people who um, are believers and maybe are looking at this and culturally how many people um, were being born in families at this time. And they do the math and say, ah, you can't get to 2 million. You just can't do this. Um, and then others, of course, will look and say, there's no way it can be 2 million. See, the Bible's not true. Um, those who, are, you know, feel overwhelmed to come up with an answer from this, but still believe in the Bible, say, well, these numbers have to be symbolic of maybe, um, you know, fighting bands of people or whatever. But when you get to this point right here, <laughs> I mean, these are not symbolic numbers, are they? You got 22,000, and you, then you have 22,273. Okay, you owe me five shekels for each one of those. Those are not, I mean, that is some exact math that's going on based upon the numbers. Michael Harbin writes in his book, The Promise and Blessing, he says, the large census numbers presented early in the book of Numbers raise many questions. While the large numbers may be difficult to accept, the best explanation still seems to be to take them at face value. And I would, I would look at this as a reason to take them at face value. Um, and it's a lot of work to, to do all that numbering and do a census and then, not, and then to then compute that into some symbolic idea. You know what I think is um, missing in this discussion of how can there be this many people? And you know, the Canaanites, the way it goes is, well, if they had 2 million, then there should have been 50 million Canaanites, and there's no way there could have been 50 million Canaanites. Except you're forgetting one thing. Maybe those numbers worked for everybody else, but God gave a distinct promise over and over again that Abraham and his descendants, he gave it to Abraham, he gave it to Isaac, and he gave it to Jacob, that how many descendants would they have? Like the stars or like the sand. So... You, what you have working here is God gave a promise that you're going to be a large multitude of people. And so I don't know practically how all of this worked out, but you have a promise from God to them that I'm going to do this. And then you also, um, you, you, you know, you have that at work. And then I want you to go back into um, the book of Exodus when Israel is still in Egypt. And what does the political powers start to be concerned with? the numbers, the growth of these people. And they're just like, they're gonna overtake us. So um, I think there is no problem with God giving a special blessing as promised and then evidently fulfilled. Um, I wish we had some more information about this, but uh, to me, 
uh, you know, and I just want to put this, I'm taking a little bit of time here. So, well, the culture says this, and we, can, we know how the families grew and what the, the average number of families, and you know, they would have had to have 25 children per woman, or, and this is kind of what they say. Um, and there's no way this could have worked out. You know, and that's what we say with the information we have. But what happens? What happens if some archaeologist and his team begins to dig stuff up and they pull up tablets and then they find out their whole way of reckoning numbers was completely wrong? Do you would have, do you, and, and now you're dead and gone, but you know, when, when they make this discovery, and now there's actually, there's archaeological evidence for this, to prove this. I'm, I'm painting a hypothetical, which is, it is true in many other areas. But you know, you've abandoned your faith and your trust in the word of God because there's no way to get to two million. Until they dig something up. You know, a lot of people said, the Bible's not true because there's no evidence that there's ever been a man by the name of Pilate. Until they stuck their shovel in the ground at Caesarea Maritima and they found a engraving with the name of, guess who? Pontius Pilate. And there are other things that, you know, I remember Pastor Chuck telling, and I don't know the details of it, but I just remember this standing out. It's like people said, you know, the Bible says that the rabbit chews the cud. He doesn't chew the cud. So therefore, the Bible's not true. And then they find out through discovery that actually it does chew the cud. So you gave up your entire faith in the Bible because of rabbit? So my point is this, it's not that this isn't a difficulty that we need to consider and be aware that it's there, but don't allow what we know of the culture from 4,000, 5,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, to undermine your faith. Look at everything else that you know. And I, I think I just gave a couple of, you know, three good references. The number here tells us they're dealing with real numbers. Um, God gave a promise that there were going to be a lot of people. And the Egyptians saw there's a lot of Israelites, like a scary amount of Israelites. We need to start killing them off. I think all those things can lead us to the conclusion that the Bible is exactly right. And there was an estimated 2 million people going through the wilderness. So it's a lot of time, and I'm less concerned about talking about how many people there are than how we handle cultural, geographical numbering issues. Just give enough time, and let's see what is discovered and what's found out. All right, so that is enough about that. Let's, let's move on. Into, well, chapter 4, I'm not going to read that, but I do want you to know what it is. It's an expansion of the Levitical duty. So if you're more interested to find out exactly what they did, um, I encourage you to dig in more and just to read through this. So that's, that's chapter 4. Into chapter 5. So that you can see, you're like, six chapters. How in the world is he going to do that? Well, this is how we're doing it, because we're summarizing it finding some places to drill down into the text that gives you kind of the, the texture of what's going on and get a feel for what's happening. So chapter five, um, there are three different laws that are gonna be uh, brought up here that they need to make certain they follow. So in chapter five, verses one through four, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper, 
everyone who has a discharge, and whoever becomes defiled by a corpse, which was easy to do because people were dying at a rapid rate in the wilderness. So this is not necessarily, I mean, these are not sinful things, right? I mean, these are just things that could cause you. I mean, if you have leprosy or some kind of bodily, you know, discharge. Um, Verse three, you shall put both male and female, you shall put them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camps in the midst of which I dwell. And the children of Israel did so and put them outside the camp as the Lord spoke to Moses, so the children of Israel did. So here's one of the walls, uh, laws, is he's reinforcing that if you are unclean, you must be outside the camp. And he says, because I dwell there. So you look at this, and we should not consider it as something like, well, this is unfair treatment. This, is, this was a way for them to understand that God is holy. I am in your midst. There is some hygienic benefits to not having those with leprosy hanging out with you. So there there were some health concerns here, but what you read is, because I'm in your camp. I'm in your camp. And before you get too uptight that some were sent outside the camp, there's somebody else that had to go outside the camp, wasn't there? He had to go outside the camp because he had become defiled. You know what his name was? Jesus. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. He went to Calvary, which was outside the walls of Jerusalem. He went outside, and there he suffered outside the camp, if you will, but not because of some defilement of his own, but because of the defilement that was laid upon him that came from you, and you, and you, and me, and us. And so Jesus took that upon himself. He went outside the camp as well. Chapter 5, uh, verses 5 through 10, there was a law regarding uh, restitution. When you uh, wronged somebody, you had to give it back, and then you also had to give 20%. So, you know, it was costly to do, um, to do this. Um, and so if somebody died... Um, then they could go to a near relative or it could go to the temple. But the idea is if you're going to take advantage of somebody, you're going to have to restore that and you're going to restore it with penalty. That's verses 5 through 10. Now verses 11 through 31. Ah, wow. These are, these are some interesting verses. Um, it's, it's, listen to this. It's a law for dealing with suspected unfaithfulness of a wife. What? It's a law that's dealing with suspected unfaithfulness of a wife. Verse 11, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, If any man's wife goes astray and behaves unfaithfully toward him, and a man lies with her carnally, and it is hidden from the eyes of the husband, and it is concealed that she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her, nor was she caught. If the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and he begins and becomes jealous of his wife who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and becomes jealous of his wife, although she has not defiled herself. So either way, you know, but he's still, he's feeling this. 
Verse 15, the man shall bring his wife to the priest and he shall bring the offering required for her, one-tenth of an ephah of barley meal. He shall pour no oil on it and put no frankincense on it because it is a grain offering of jealousy, an offering for remembering, for bringing iniquity to remembrance. And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. The priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. And the priest shall stand the woman before the Lord and cover the woman's head and put the offering for remembering in her hands, which is a grain offering of jealousy. And the priest shall have in his hand bitter water that brings a curse. And the priest shall put her under oath and say to the woman, if no man has lain with you and you have not gone astray to uncleanness while under your husband's authority, be free from this bitterness, this bitter water that brings a curse. But if you have gone astray while under your husband's authority and if you have defiled yourself and, and some other man, then your, husband, uh, then your husband has lain with you, then the priest shall put the woman under the oath of curse and he shall say to the woman, the Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people, when the Lord makes your thigh rot and your belly swell. Okay, this is some interesting stuff. <laughs> I mean, the, there's no account um, of how this ever turned out. This is it's just a law that's there. Somehow, you're like, how could that work? Because God had to be involved in this. So, you know, if she was unfaithful, then, you know, she was going to have a big old belly and her thigh was going to rot. As you move on down, um, I see where I want to pick this up because I think it's, let's pick up around verse 28. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and may conceive children. That is the law of jealousy when a wife, while under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself. Or when the spirit of jealousy comes upon a man and he becomes jealous of his wife, then he shall stand the woman before the Lord, and the priest shall execute this law upon her. The man shall be free from iniquity, but the woman shall bear her guilt. Now, if the woman was innocent and her belly did not swell and her thigh did not rot, um, the husband wasn't in trouble until he got home. <laughs> when he got home, I told you. Now, you may like, what is the point of all this? Well, have you ever been falsely accused of something? And how do you prove that you didn't do something? That's a very difficult thing to do, isn't it? So, in, in, although this is strange and it is odd, there was a built-in mechanism here. I mean, guys can be jealous. You don't have to say amen, ladies. But men have known to be jealous. There can be a, a good jealousy, but there can be a bad jealousy. And that bad jealousy can make somebody's life miserable. But God provided a way for that jealousy to be solved. Take it before the Lord. And if nothing happened, then he needed to be done with that jealousy and not treat her on a suspicion of doing evil. There was a way. So it, although it's odd, if you were married to a jealous freak, this was your escape clause. Can you see that? So it's an interesting passage. What do we take away from this? We are to be faithful to our marital vows. That's, I think, the takeaway for this. Um, and trust the Lord. So that, that's chapter 5. 
Um, interesting, interesting chapters. Into chapter um, 6, uh, verses 1 through 21, deal with the Nazarite vow. Um, the Nazarite vow, this was a voluntary separation of an, individual, of an individual unto the Lord. And there were requirements uh, during this vow. Um, but the, the idea is I want to be totally committed to you. You weren't forced to take this. You had the, uh, it was a free will um, vow that you could enter into along with all the corresponding sacrifices that would come at the end. But this is a beautiful act of worship. This was somebody just saying, I am yours. I am totally yours, Lord. Even the things that I do not a normal, um, normally have to stay apart from, I'm going to stay apart from them because I want to just show you that I love you and I worship you. So in verse 3 of chapter 6, he shall separate himself from wine and similar drink. He shall drink neither vinegar um, from wine nor vinegar made from similar drink. Neither shall he drink any grape juice nor eat fresh grapes or raisins. Okay. And so as you go through verse 5, um, his hair should not be cut or her hair should not be cut till the end of the vow. Verses 6 through 7, you could have no contact with the dead. So you might be thinking about Samson, right? Um, who was a lifelong Nazarite vow. The Lord called him into that. Um, in verse 14, as they came to the end of the vow, um, he would, the, the worshiper would bring um, costly, it was, this was expensive. They would bring a male lamb for a burnt offering. They would bring a ewe lamb for a sin offering. They would bring a ram for a peace offering and a basket of unleavened bread for the grain offering. It was going to cost something. It was going to cost something while you're in the vow. It was going to cost something when you finished the vow. It was going to affect your flesh, what you could taste, what you could eat. Um, it was going to affect relationships. And if somebody died while you're in this vow, um, your physical appearance was going to be impacted by this. But the vow signified one who wanted to be holy and separated unto the Lord. And so only a serious worshiper would have engaged in this vow. And then at the end, they would have had to have made all of these sacrifices. Acts chapter 21. Paul comes back to Jerusalem and the leadership says, hey, we have four guys that have taken a vow. People think bad thoughts about you. They think that you're against, you know, uh, Moses and the law. Why don't you pay for these four guys? And so he, he pays for them. Um, and you can see it was a male. It was a ewe lamb. It was a ram and basket. So he, they paid for that with some of the offerings that they had collected. It didn't work out very good. They didn't convince anybody that, you know, that he was okay. But it, it did not turn out well. But this is, that's the, what he was asked to pay for was what we just um, referenced there in verse 14. And, you know, there are times in our own life where I think, you know, um, you know, some of my kids, you know, they're like, you know what, we're, you know, we're going on a, nobody's told them to do it. They're just making this decision. We're going on a media fast, no TV, no internet, no phones. We're not doing anything. Um, and, you know, we're just going to be in the house. We're going to, we're going to do board games. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to have more time together. We're going to spend more time praying. And you know, nobody has to do that. But this is one of those things where it's just, we're making a vow to the Lord. This is what we're going to do just so we can draw near. Now, you can turn this into legalism if you want to, but there are things you can just, 
You can just say, Lord, I am setting these things aside because I just need to hear from you. I want to seek your face right now. And so um, I think that is one way you might see that lived out today. Now, as we wrap it up here, verses 23 through 27, these may be the most familiar verses of chapter 1 through 6. Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. So Aaron and the priests, they were to speak a blessing over the children of Israel. And this is, what, this is the blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. I love that last line. They'll put my name on them as they, they make this pronouncement. It was a threefold blessing that they would be blessed and they would be kept. Um, that's one. That he would, his face would shine upon them and be gracious to them. That his countenance would be upon them and give them peace. Blessing and keeping. You know, we are told in Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has what? What's the word? Blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So in Jesus, we have our high priest blessing us with how much? Every spiritual blessing. Romans 8.32 says this, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Your God, is he a tight-fisted God? You got to pry it out of his fingers? I mean, he's like the ogre of heaven. You've, you thought, you know, your dad was tight-fisted. Wait till you deal with Yahweh. You know, and you got to try and pry those fingers apart. He is not going to do that. So when you come and pray, when you come and pray to Yahweh, man, you better have a prayer that's going to move him because he does not want to give you. Or, or is your God one that is, um, it's not that he's tight-fisted. You know, he's just, he's got to just be convinced. Or he's looking for somebody who's worthy. And so you've got to make sure your life is together. So, you know, this was not a good week for, you know, me and my spiritual life. And I really need God to work. But I can't come and ask him this week because God will, he's not going to give to those that, that mess up. Who's your God? Is he, is he this one who freely gives you all things? Is that who you, and when I say who's your God, it's like, if we could only listen to your prayer, and develop a picture of who God was, only through your prayers, what would God be like? Would it be a tight-fisted ogre? Would it be some you know, mean-spirited person that wouldn't give anybody anything to anybody? Is he a guy that you've got, you got to convince him that there's some benefit back to him? Lord, if you give me a, a, a bigger car, a newer car, I can take more people to church. You need more people at church, Lord. And so you're trying to convince who is your God? Or is he your father? Who you can come to? Who's given you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and freely gives us all things? Evaluate your prayer. Begin to think about that. So he is going to bless um, us. He has blessed us. He's going to keep us. 
Um, he's going to watch over us. Um, yeah, I've got a handful of verses, but I'll just, let's, um, let me just look at Hebrews 13.5. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's going to keep you. He's not going to abandon you. Um, oh, how about uh, Psalm 91.11? For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. Or 1 Thessalonians 5, he's going to present you blameless. Or Jude 124, he'll present you faultless. He's going to keep you. You can trust the Lord with what you've committed to him, that he is going to take that and he is going to be faithful. So it's a threefold blessing. He's going to bless you. He's going to keep you. He's going to make his face shine upon you and be gracious. Um, the idea is uh, the idea of turning a face to look at somebody to bless them. You ever been mad at somebody before? I know you haven't. Probably second service people, but, you know, not Wednesday night crowd. Have you ever been mad at somebody and you haven't even wanted to look at them? I know you have. But the, the, the Lord turns his face towards us to bless us and to be gracious to us. We can come to the Lord and face to face he will pour out his grace to us. So we're told in Hebrews 4.16, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may re obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Well, I can't come now because my life's all messed up. I think that's exactly when you should come. That's when you need help. That's when you need mercy. And then lastly, his countenance would be upon them and give them peace. Philippians 4, 7, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Again, our high priest is looking upon us and he is pronouncing peace over us. Peace was promised in Isaiah for those whose mind was fixed upon the Lord. And Jesus promises peace. The idea of peace, well, the, the, the Hebrew word here is, you probably can guess it, for peace is the Hebrew word what? Shalom. Shalom. You're right. It's the idea of peace or welfare or safety. His shalom is going to be over you. He's watching over you. And so, well, I forgot the last verse. I'm sorry. Chapter 6, verse 27. So they shall put my name on the children of Israel, and I will bless them. This is God's heart, is to bless his people, is to bless you. And so, come to your priest. His name is Jesus of the order of Melchizedek, who sympathizes with your weaknesses and let him pronounce blessing and that shalom upon you. He will keep you. He's going to be gracious to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness and your goodness towards us. We thank you for our, our high priest, the one who was given us every spiritual blessing. Lord, we are short on nothing tonight. You freely give us all things. We can say, even with greater gusto than the psalmist, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Lord, you've given us green pastures and still waters, but you've given us a whole lot more than that through your son, Jesus. And so I just pray, Lord, you would, you would minister those things to us right now that you would look afresh upon us and that we would remember that you are looking upon us and that you're wanting to bless us. 
Lord, some of these other thoughts that we consider tonight, help us to be a people that are wholly committed to you, that we are yours. The royal priesthood under the new covenant as Peter described. Lord, we want to be faithful, servants and stewards of all that you've given to us. And it is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.